Section 23 of Heart, A Schoolboy's Journal. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kristen Lewis, Houston, Texas. Heart, A Schoolboy's Journal. By Edmondo Diamichis. Translated by Isabel Florence Hapgood. Chapter June. The Distribution of Prizes. What a beautiful day! How happy I should have been had I not encountered my schoolmistress. I met her coming down the staircase of our house almost in the dark, and as soon as she recognized me, she took both my hands and whispered in my ear, Goodbye, Enrico. Remember me. I saw that she was weeping. I went up and told my mother about it. I have just met my schoolmistress. She was just going to bed, replied my mother, whose eyes were red. And then she added very sadly, looking straight at me, Your teacher is very ill. The Distribution of Prizes to the Working Men, Sunday, 25th. As we had agreed, we all went together to the theater of Victor Emmanuel to view the distribution of prizes to the working men. The theater was adorned, as on the 14th of March, and thronged, but almost wholly with the families of workmen and the pit was occupied by a male and female pupils of the school of choral singing. They sang a hymn to the soldiers who had died in the Crimea, which was so beautiful that, when it was all finished, all rose and clapped and shouted, so that the song had to be repeated from the beginning. Then the prize-winners began to march past the mayor, the prefect, and many others who represented the books, savings bank books, diplomas, and medals. In one corner of the pit I espied the little mason sitting beside his mother. In another place there was the principal, beside him the redhead of my teacher of the second grade. The first two passed were the pupils of the evening drawing classes. The goldsmith, engravers, lithographers, carpenters, and masons. Then those of the commercial school. Then those of the musical, Lamcom, among them several girls, working women, all dressed in festival attire and smiling, who were saluted with great applause. Last came the pupils of the elementary evening schools. It was a fine sight. They were of all ages, of all trades, and dressed in all sorts of ways. Men with gray hair, factory boys, artisans with big black beards. The little ones were at their ease, the men a little embarrassed. The people clapped the oldest and the youngest, but none of the spectators laughed. As they did at our festivals, all faces were attentive and serious. Many of the prize winners had wives and children in the pit, and there were little children who, when they saw their father pass across the stage, called him by name at the top of their voices, and signaled to him with their hands, laughing loudly. Peasants passed, and porters. They were from the Bukom Pagni School, from the Citadella School. There was a bootblack whom my father knew and the prefect gave him a diploma. After him, I saw approaching a man as big as a giant, whom I fancied that I had seen several times before. It was the father of the little mason, who had won the second prize. I remembered when I had seen him in the garret, at the bedside of his sick son, and I immediately sought out his son in the pit. Poor little mason! He was staring at his father with beaming eyes, and in order to hide his feelings, he made his hair's face. At that moment I heard a burst of applause, and I glanced at the stage. A little chimney-sweep stood there with a clean face, 
but in his working clothes, and the mayor was holding him by the hand and talking to him. After the chimney sweep came a cook, then one of the city sweepers, from the Rhinier school, to get a prize. I felt I know not what in my heart, something like a great affection and a great respect, at the thought of how much those prizes had cost all those working men, fathers of families full of care, how much toil added to their labors, how many hours snatched from their sleep, of which they stand in such great need, and what efforts of minds not used to study, and of huge hands made clumsy with work. A factory boy passed, and it was evident that his father had lent him his jacket for the occasion, for his sleeves hung down so that he was forced to turn them back while on the stage, in order to receive his prize. And many laughed, but the laugh was speedily stifened by the applause. Next came an old man with a bald head and a white beard. Several artillery soldiers passed. From among those who attended evening school in our schoolhouse, then came custom house guards and policemen among, among those who guard our schools. At the conclusion, the pupils of the evening schools again sang the hymn to the dead in the Crimea, for this time with so much dash, with the strength of affection which came so directly from the heart, that the audience hardly applauded at all, but went away in a deep emotion, slowly and quietly. In a few moments, the whole street was thronged, in front of the entrance to the theater was the chimney sweep, with his prize book bound in red, and all around were gentlemen talking to him. Many exchanged greetings from the opposite side of the street. Workmen, boys, policemen, teachers. My teacher of the second grade came out in the midst of the crowd between two artillerymen, and there were workmen's wives with babies in their arms who held in their tiny hands their father's diploma and exhibited to the crowd in their pride. My dead schoolmistress, Tuesday, 27th. While we were at the theater, Victor Emmanuel, my poor schoolmistress, died. She died at two o'clock, a week after she had come to see my mother. The principal came to school yesterday to announce it to us, and he said, Those of you who were her pupils knew how good she was, how she loved her boys. She was a mother to them. Now she is no more. For a long time a terrible malady had been sapping her life. If she had not been obliged to work to earn her bread, she could have taken care of herself. I read perhaps recovered. At all events she could have prolonged her life for several months if she had obtained a leave of absence. But she wished to remain among her boys to the very last day. On the evening of Saturday, the 17th, she took leave of them, with the certainty that she should never see them again. She gave them a good advice, kissed them all, and went away sobbing. No one will ever see her again. Remember her, my boys. Little Prakasi, who had been one of her pupils in the upper primary, dropped his head on his desk and began to cry. Yesterday afternoon, after school, we all went together to the house of the dead woman to accompany her, her body to church. There was a hearse in the street with two horses, and many people were waiting and conversing in a low voice. There was the principal, and all the masters and mistresses of our school, and from the other schoolhouses where she had taught in bygone years. There were nearly all of the little children in her classes, led by the hand, by their mothers, who carried tapers, and there were very great many from the other classes, and fifty scholars from the Baretti school, some with wreaths in their hands, some with bunches of roses. 
a great many bouquet of flowers had already been placed on the hirsch, among which was fastened at a large wreath of acacia, with an inscription on black letters, the old pupils of the fourth grade to their mistress, and then under the large wreath a little one was suspended, which the babies had brought. Among the crowd were seen many servant women who had been sent by their mistresses with candles, and there were also two serving men in livery with lighted torches, and a wealthy gentleman, the father of one of the mistress's scholars, had sent his carriage lined with blue satin. All were crowded together near the door. Several girls were wiping away their tears. We waited for a while in silence. At length the casket was brought out. Some of the little ones began to cry loudly when they saw the coffin put into the hearse, and one began to shriek as though he had only then realized that his mistress was dead. And he was seized with such a convulsive fit of sobbing that they were obliged to carry him away. The procession got slowly in line and set out. First came the daughters of Retiro della Concion, dressed in green, then the daughters of Maria, all in white, with a blue ribbon. Then the priest, and behind the hirsch, the masters and mistresses, the tiny scholars of the upper primary, and all the others. And at the end of all, the crowd. People came to the windows and to the doors, and on seeing all those boys and the reef, they said, It is a schoolmistress. Even some of the ladies who went with the smallest children wept. When the church was reached, the casket was removed from the hirsch and carried to the middle of the nave, in front of the great altar. The mistresses laid their reefs on it, the children covered it with flowers, and the people, all about, with lighted candles in their hands, began to chant the prayers at the vast and gloomy church. Then, all of a sudden, when the priest had said the last amen, the candles were distinguished, and all went away in haste, and the mistress was left alone. Poor mistress, who was so kind to me, who had so much patience who had toiled for so many years, for she has left to her scholars her little books and everything which she possessed, to one an inkstand, to another a little pitcher. Two days before her death she said to the headmaster that he was not to allow the smallest of them to go to her funeral, because she did not wish for them to cry. She has done good, she has suffered, she is dead. Poor mistress, left alone in the dark church, farewell. Farewell forever, my kind friend, sad and sweet memory of my childhood. Thanks, Wednesday, 28th. My poor schoolmistress wanted to finish her year of school. She departed only three days before the end of the lessons. Day after tomorrow, we go once more to the schoolhouse to hear the reading of the monthly story, The Shipwreck, and then it is over. On Saturday, the 1st of July, the examinations begin, and then another year. The fourth is past. If my mistress had not died, it would have passed well. I thought over all that I had known on the preceding October, and it seems to me that I know a good deal more. I have so many new things in my mind. I can say and write what I think better than I could then. I can also do the sums of many grown-up men who know nothing about it and help them in their affairs. I understand much more. I remember nearly everything that I read. I am satisfied. But how many people have urged me on and helped me to learn one in one way and another in another at home, at school, and in the street, everywhere where I have been and where I have seen everything, and now I thank you all. 
I thank you first, my good teacher, for having been so indulgent and affectionate with me. For you, every new acquisition of mine was a labor, for which I now rejoice and of which I am proud. I thank you, Darasi, my admirable friend, for your prompt and kind explanations, for you have made me understand many of the most difficult things, and to overcome stumbling blocks at examinations. And you too, Starde, you brave and strong boy, who have shown me how a will of iron succeeds in everything, and you, kind, good, Godani, who make all those who know you kind and good too, and you too, Perkasi and Koredi, who have given me an example of courage in suffering and of serenity in toil. I return thanks to you and thanks to all the rest. But above all, I thank you, my father, my first teacher, my first friend, who has given me so many wise counsels and taught me so many things, while you were working for me, always concealing your sadness from me, and seeking in all ways to render study easy and life beautiful to me. And you, sweet mother, my beloved and blessed guardian angel, who have tasted all my joys and suffered all my bitternesses, who have studied, worked, and wept with me, with one hand on my brow, and with the other pointing me to heaven. I kneel before you as when I was a little child, and I thank you for all the tenderness which you have instilled in my mind through twelve years of sacrifices and love. The Shipwreck Last Monthly Story One morning in the month of December, several years ago, there sailed from the port of Liverpool a huge steamer which had on board two hundred persons, including a crew of seventy. The captain and nearly all the sailors were English. Among the passengers there were several Italians, three gentlemen, a priest, and a company of musicians. The steamer was bound for the island of Malta. The weather was threatening. Among the third-class passengers forward was an Italian lad of twelve, small for his age, but robust. A bold, handsome, stern face of a Sicily type, he was alone near the foremast, seated on a coil of cartage beside a well-worn vase, which contained his effects, and among which he kept a hand. His complexion was brown, and his black and wavy hair descended to his shoulders. He was meanly clad, and had a tattered mantle thrown over his shoulders, and an old leather-brown pouch on a cross-belt. He gazed thoughtfully about him at the passengers, the ship, the sailors who were running past, and at the restless sea. He had the appearance of a boy who had lately gone through a great family sorrow, the face of a child, the expression of a man. A little after their departure, one of the steamer's crew, an Italian with gray hair, made his appearance on the bow, holding by the hand a little girl, and coming to halt in front of the little Sician, he said, Here's a traveling companion for you, Mario. Then he went away. The girl seated herself on the pile of cartage beside the boy. They looked at each other. Where are you going? asked the Sicilian. The girl replied, To Malta on the way to Naples. Then she added, I'm going to see my father and mother, who are expecting me. My name is Gililetta Flagiani. The boy said nothing. After the lapse of a few minutes, he drew some bread from his pouch and some dried fruit. The girl had some biscuits. They began to eat. Look sharp there, shouted the Italian sailor as he passed rapidly. A lively time is at hand. The wind continued to increase. The steamer pitched heavily. 
but the two children who did not suffer from seasickness paid no heed to it the little girl smiled she was about the same age as her companion but was considerably taller browner of complexion slender somewhat sickly and dressed very plainly her hair was short and curling she wore a red kerchief over her head and silver rings in her ears while they ate they talked about themselves and their affairs the boy had lost both mother and father the father artesian had died a few days previously in liverpool leaving him alone and the italian consul had sent him back to his country to palamo where he had some distant relatives the little girl had been taken to london the year before by a widowed aunt who was very fond of her and to whom her parents poor people had given her for a time trusting in the promise of an inheritance but the aunt had died a few months later ran over by an omnibus without leaving a sestimo and then she too had had the recourse to the consul who had shipped her to italy both had been recommended to the care of the italian sailor so concluded the little maid my father and mother thought that i would return rich and instead i am returning poor but they will love me all the same and so will my brothers i have four of them all small i am the oldest at home i dress them they will be glad to see me i will come in on tiptoe the sea is ugly then she asked the boy and are you going to stay with your relatives yes if they want me do they not love you i don't know i shall be thirteen at christmas said the girl then they begin to talk about the sea and the people on board around them they remain near each other all day exchanging a few words now and then the passengers thought them brother and sister the girl knitted at a stocking the boy meditated and the sea continued to grow rougher at night as they parted the little girl said to mario sleep well no one will sleep well my poor children exclaimed the italian soldier as he ran past in answer to a call from the captain the boy was on the point of replying with a good-night to his little friend when an unexpected dash of water dealt him a violent blow and flung him against a seat dear me you are bleeding cried the girl running to him the passengers who were making their escape below paid no heed to them the child knelt down beside mario who had been stunned by the blow wiped the blood from his brow and pulling the red handkerchief from her hair she bound it about his head, then pressed his head to her breast in order to knot the ends, and thus received a spot of blood on her yellow dress, just above the girdle. Mario shook his head and rose. Are you better? asked the girl. I no longer feel it, he replied. Sleep well, said Giulietta. Good night, responded Mario. And they descended two steps of steps to their dormitories. The sailor's prediction proved correct. Before they could get to sleep, a frightful tempest had broken loose. It was a sudden onslaught of furious billows, which in the course of a few minutes split one mask and carried away three boats that were suspended to the falls, and four cows on the bow, like leaves. On board the steamer there arose a confusion, a terror, an uproar, and a tempest of shrieks, wails, and prayers, sufficient to make the hair stand on end. The storm continued in fury all night. At daybreak it was still increasing. The formidable waves dashing the craft trans transversely broke over the deck and smashed, split, hurled everything into the sea. The platform, which screamed, 
the engine was destroyed and the water dashed with a terrible roar the fires were put out the engine mirrors fled huge and raging streams forced their way everywhere a voice of thunder shouted to the pumps it was the captain's voice the sailors rushed to the pumps but the sudden burst of a sea striking the vessel on the stern demolished bulwarks and hatchways and sent a flood within all the passengers more dead than alive had taken refuge in the grand saloon at last the captain appeared captain captain they all shrieked together what is taking place where are we is there any hope save us the captain waited until they were silent then said coolly let us be resigned one woman uttered a cry of mercy no one else could give vent to a sound terror had frozen them all a long time passed thus in a silence like that of a grave all glazed at each other with blanched faces the sea continued to rage and roar the vessel pitched heavily at one moment the captain attempted to launch one lifeboat five sailors entered it the boat sank the waves turned it over and two of the sailors were drowned among them the italian the others contrived with difficulty to catch hold of the ropes and draw themselves up again after this the sailors themselves lost all courage two hours later the vessel was sunk in the water to the portholes a terrible scene was presented meanwhile on the deck mothers pressed their children to their breast in despair friends embraced and bade each other farewell some went down into the cabins that they might die without seeing the sea one passenger shot himself in the head with a pistol and fell headlong down the stairs to the cabin where he expired many clung frantically to each other women withered in convulsions above all was heard a chorus of sobs of infantile limits of strange and piercing voices and here and there persons stood motionless as statues in stupor with eyes dilated and sightless faces of corpse and madmen the two children Giulietti and mario clung to a mask and gazed at the sea with staring eyes as though senseless the sea had calmed a little but the vessel continued to sink slowly only a few minutes remained to them launch the longboat shouted the captain a boat the last that remained was thrown into the water and fourteen sailors and three passengers got into it the captain remained on board come with us they shouted to him from below i must die at my post replied the captain we shall meet a vessel the sailors cried we shall be saved come down you are lost i shall remain there is room for one more shouted the sailors turning to the other passengers a woman a woman advanced aided by the captain but on seeing the distance at which the boat lay she did not have the courage to leap down but fell back among the deck the other woman had nearly all fainted and were as dead a boy shouted the sailors at that shout the sician lad and his companion who had remained up to that moment petrified in a supernatural stupor were suddenly roused again by a violent instinct to save their lives they left the mask and rushed together to the side of the vessel shrieking take me and trying in turn to drive the other back like furious beasts the smaller shouted the sailors the boat is overloaded the smaller on hearing these words the girl dropped her arms as though struck by lightning and stood motionless staring at mario with lustrous eyes mario looked at her for a moment saw the spot of blood on her bodice remembered the gleam of a divine thought 
flashed across his face. The smaller shouted the sailor again impatiently, We are going. And then Mario, with a voice which no longer seemed his own, cried, She is the lighter. It is for you, Julietta. You have a father and a mother. I am alone. I give you my place. Go down. Throw her into the sea, shouted the sailors. Mario seized Julietta by the body and threw her into the sea. The girl uttered a cry and made a splash. The, a sailor seized her by the arm and dragged her into the boat. The boy remained at the vessel's side with his head held high, his hair streaming in the wind, motionless, tranquil, sublime. The boat moved off just in time to escape the whirlpool made by the vessel as it sank, and which threatened to overturn it. Then the girl, who had been stunned until that moment, raised her eyes to the boy and burst into a storm of tears. "'Good-bye, Mario,' she cried amid her sobs, with her arms outstretched toward him. "'Good-bye, good-bye, good-bye.' "'Good-bye,' replied the boy, raising his hand. The boat went swiftly away across the troubled sea beneath the dark sky. No one on board the vessel shouted any longer. The water was lapping the edges of the deck. Suddenly the boy fell on his knees, with his hands folded, and his eyes raised to heaven. The girl covered her face. Then she raised it again. She cast a glance over the sea. The vessel was gone. End of section 23. Recording by Kristen Lewis, Houston, Texas.